It is the sound of our soul. And there's no way that anybody can hear that except through music. And we are reading 150 pieces of music right now. Now, it's the words to the music. That's important. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. I'm Janice. And this is, of course, Bible Discovery. And as we look at the book of Psalms, we study some interesting things in Psalm 32. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Corey and Ryan are here. Well, we are going to find out today where the ancient Israelites got their salt. Ryan? Today, to go along with our reading through the Psalms, I'm beginning a series that will highlight various aspects of God's creation. All right, very good. Look forward to that. Janice? Two words, really close. All right, really close. <laughs> well, that's good. All of this is coming your way. Their segment's coming up in about 23 minutes. Janice is coming up in about 25 minutes. Remember the Bible guide, you can get yours by going on BibleDiscoveryTV.com. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 11. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place, you shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 11. Psalm 29, 30, 31, and 32, that's the passage of Scripture we read today. You know, music, I'll tell you, it's the sound of our soul, isn't it? When we sing, we communicate something that cannot be expressed in the same way as when we speak normally or when we pre present a sermon. It just is. From the time of instruments to the melody of our voices, music can resonate with deeper meaning meaning of inward expression, and the emotional bandwidth of what we want to say. You see, good people produce great music. 
but messed up people produce messed up music. The sound of sin is horrible, while the image of righteousness is wonderful. Psalm 32 is a song of David reminding us how great God is and the joy that we can have through his forgiveness. As we join our hearts to read and pray and sing the lyrics, we express our personal need for God and his ability to forgive us for the wrong we have done. We ask God to forgive us and to help us. Praise God for his help and his deliverance. He has promised to do so. In fact, it says in the Bible that if you confess your sins, God will be faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Praise God. He helps us today. And as we look at today's passage, be glad in the Lord. Take your Bible guide and turn it to today's passage because it's going to be great. Now, if you don't have a Bible guide, why not? Why not? You should get one. Call us or write to us and Get one. Another way to get one is this. Go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, BibleDiscoveryTV.com, and that's where you can see the programs are live there. Uh, writing, we have wonderful writing there. We have all kinds of things, but to get the guide, click on the page of the guide, and it will take you to, of course, a donate page, and thank you for your donations. We very much appreciate them, and your donations keep us alive right now, so thank you for that. Then it takes you to a page where you can download it. So you're seconds away from joining us in this teaching. Be glad in the Lord. Father, I pray today as we try to understand what Psalm 32 says, we try to learn what you've talked to us about. Help us to change our heart. Holy Spirit, teach us your way and show us your path. This is what we need to know. So we thank you, Lord. And in Jesus' name, help us to listen to the right kind of music the music of God, and help us to hear you, Lord, in Jesus' wonderful name. And we all said together, amen. As we look at this, let's consider what the scripture says. Psalm 32, verse one, here's what it says. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. This is what David says. This is what the psalmist says. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is amazing. God makes us spiritually pure when we are forgiven by him. He is the only one who can do that. We must confront our sin and deal with it. And a lot of people think, I'm not going to work with my sin because I can't do anything about it. Of course you can't. Nobody can do anything about their sin. But what we can do is we can ask Jesus to come into our heart. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, lived 2,000 years ago. We killed him. And three days after he was killed, he rose to life with no one's help in the flesh, seen by over 500 men. And he, we understand that Jesus Christ, we invite him into our heart. Then what happens is he comes in with the Holy Spirit. He begins to change us. That's interesting, isn't it? Well, that's what God does. All right. Psalm 32, verses 3 to 5, the Bible says, and this is interesting. It says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. When I kept silent, my bones grew old and my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. 
My vitality was turned into drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Which brings me to the next point. True confession to God is the only way to deal with sin. Making a meeting with you and God. God made a way for forgiveness of our sin through his son, Jesus Christ. Listen to me carefully. Ever since Adam sinned and tried, I mean, if you're going to hide from God, why would you hide behind a bush, which God made? Like, I mean, really think about it. But Adam lost something when he sinned. He lost the ability to reason and think. But God says, starts asking questions. Where are you? What have you done? Did you sin? God begins the confession. Why? Does God not know this? Of course he knows it. He's trying to encourage Adam to confess. Fascinating. So confession is important, beloved. We confess to the Lord. Nobody else, just to the Lord. And he begins to help us. All right, let's go on to the next scripture because this is interesting. 36, 6 through 11. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. That's right now. Okay, it's, I'm just letting you know. He can be found right now. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You, Lord, you shall preserve me from troubles. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, says the Lord. I will guide you with my eye, says God. Did you, did you read that? Verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll do that. I will guide you with my eye. God takes control. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be Harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they would not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. The last verse, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all of you upright and hard, joy. Trust in the Lord. He is our only true way to be at rest and protected. Jesus Christ is our only true way to be at rest and protected. God hides us in his arms when we confess our sins to him. God hides us. That's one of the things I love about the Lord. When I am tired, man, I mean, I... Nobody can understand me and I'm lost. I say, Lord, I need your help. I just pray. I say, Lord Jesus, I need your help. And you know what happens? His Holy Spirit comes and helps me. I mean, God is so faithful. And beloved, that's what we need to do in times of difficulty, in times of trouble, in times of harassment, in times of persecution. We need to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I need your help. Only you can help me. I'm not looking for help anywhere else here. But I need you, Lord. Help us today, in Jesus' name.
Hi, Rod Hember here. We go through the Bible every year from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now you can join us and watch at the time you like by searching Bible Discovery TV on the Roku box or on Amazon Fire TV. Anytime you want to watch us, we're there. Get a hold of it. Watch us anytime you want to. Today, you and I are going to be taking a look at ancient salt, but specifically ancient salt production in Israel, in the biblical land of Israel. Um, now, this is because we read about salt quite often, a surprising amount in the Old Testament. You know, salt was involved in the offerings and sacrifices at the temple. It was involved in making covenants, and it was involved in the everyday activities that we still think of when we think of salt. So, you know, curing meat, preservation, and things of that nature. Uh, and it was used beyond even what we think of for very practical purposes. So let's take a look at salt. It's a commonly known truth in ancient Near Eastern studies that salt was an important staple of everyday life. Salt enhances the flavor of food, increasing the enjoyment of the meal, and it had many other practical uses. Salt enabled the preservation of fish and other meats, as well as fruits and vegetables, making it an invaluable tool of survival. It was used in the production of cheese, in the processing of leather, the glazing of bricks and ceramics, textile dyeing, medicine, and cosmetics. Salt had religious significance, including as an important addition to the sacrificial offerings of Israel. It was also used as an offensive weapon in warfare. After a conquering army had taken territory or destroyed a city, if they wanted to really drive home the destruction, they would sow the city and surrounding fields with salt. Symbolically, this preserved its destruction. Physically, it made the fields inhospitable to crops, making rebuilding an unlikely, or at least a very difficult, affair. Because of all these uses, salt was a prized commodity, and the fact that it's long-lasting and easy to store accounts for its famous use as payment to soldiers in the Roman period. In biblical Israel, it has recently been proven that salt production and harvesting happened along Israel's northern Mediterranean coast and not just in the more obvious Dead Sea region. There were several steps and environmental factors needed to harvest sea salt. First, the source of the salt, in this case, the Mediterranean Sea. Watertight evaporating pans for the water to settle and evaporate in, leaving behind the crystallized salt. And weather that was hot and dry for long enough to facilitate large-scale evaporation. Today, the visible remains of 28 ancient salt works have been explored. They consist of rock-cut channels, wells, and large evaporating pans that are located around modern Haifa. Due to their reuse throughout the ages, it's impossible to know for sure how old they are, although researchers are confident that they were in use from at least the 2nd century BC to the 13th century AD. To harvest salt from the sea, water first has to be collected. This was done in a few ways depending on the topography of the seashore. A lifting slope could be carved in a rocky shoreline, or a channel could be cut or created that would utilize wave energy to move the water in towards the pan or a well. If the water was collected in a well, it would need to be lifted out and directed toward the evaporating pan which itself was a large, shallow pool either naturally occurring or carved in the ground. 
Animals with a bucket and pulley system or a chain and bucket system were often used to lift seawater out of the wells and into conveying channels. Once in the evaporating pans, the seawater was left to evaporate. The salt would then be harvested by hand, stacked in piles, and collected for distribution. These kinds of studies are some of my favorites. And what I mean by that is these studies show us how the everyday life of ancient Israelites were lived and, and how they managed to create the society and the lives uh, that they did. So it's always really interesting. It adds that human element, that cultural element to the scripture, reminding us that these were real things that happened to real human people. And when we remember that as we're reading the scriptures, they can really come alive to us uh, in, a, in a way that we move beyond just reading something because it's some religious obligation to reading something that really can connect with us and that we strive to understand. Very interesting, Corey. Excellent. Okay, Ryan. All right. Well, yesterday we talked about the differences between what scholars like to call general revelation and special revelation. And just to review, general revelation refers to nature, while special revelation refers to the Bible. Nature provides us general information about God. For, in, for instance, the creation clearly was created by an outside force, since life can only come from other life. That's known in science as the law of biogenesis. So we know that a creator exists. The magnificent designs we find in nature also reveals to us that he must be very intelligent, wise, and powerful. But this is pretty much the extent of the knowledge about God that we can glean from nature alone. And that's why the Creator also provided us the special revelation of His Word. The Bible provides us special and very specific information regarding who exactly that Creator is, namely Jesus Christ. We also discussed that the general revelation of nature should never be allowed to take precedence over the special revelation of the Bible, because in many ways nature is subjective, meaning different people will come to different conclusions about it. But the Bible isn't subjective, but objective, which means it's not influenced by a person's feelings or opinions. It's just fact. That's why the Bible should be used to interpret the creation, not the other way around. And we're going to put this into practice today. We're going to view the creation through the lens of Scripture, and it's going to be very, very enlightening. Now, we know from the special revelation of the Bible that there is only one God, but at the same time, He exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, that's something that we could have never learned about God from studying nature alone. But now that we know this about God, let's see how the creation reflects its Creator. In the very first verse of the Bible, the name of God is used in its plural form, Elohim. In fact, this Hebrew name for God is used more than 30 times in Genesis chapter 1 alone. Although the use of this name by itself does not necessarily prove the plurality of the Godhead, the Bible does go on to teach and develop this idea, even within the early chapters of Genesis. For example, in Genesis 1.26, God, Elohim says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Again he says in Genesis 3.22, Behold, the man has become like one of us. And in Genesis 11.7, he says again, Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language. Eventually, in the New Testament, the Bible develops this plurality even further, revealing that Elohim is a triune God, 
consisting of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. At the same time, the Bible explicitly teaches that the Lord our God, the Lord, is one, and Him only shall you serve. How then can believers claim that they serve one God when the Bible clearly teaches a triune God? How can God be three and yet be one? Though as finite beings we are limited in our understanding, to help us somewhat grasp this concept, we can turn to God's own creation, which actually contains many instances of three-in-ones. Consider space, for example. Space is comprised of three dimensions, length, width, and height. In space, you can move forward and backward, left and right, and up and down. Any other movements are combinations of these three directions. Just as God has three forms but is still one God, space also has three dimensions, yet is one in nature. Another example is time. Time has a past, a present, and a future. It is one dimension, yet it is perceived in three divisions. Also consider the atom. All atoms except for hydrogen are made up of three subatomic particles, protons, neutrons, and electrons. And protons and neutrons are also believed to be made up of three even smaller particles known as quarks. Matter also exists in three forms, solid, liquid, and gas. There are three primary colors, and the universe itself consists of time, space, and matter. Yet perhaps the greatest illustration of God's triune nature is found within God's final act of creation, the creation of mankind. Indeed, man was created in the image of God, and like him, our person also exists in three forms, our body, our soul, and our spirit. Thus creation stands not only as a testimony to its creator, but also as a beautiful illustration of his triune nature. You know, nature's three-in-ones don't seem all that significant by themselves, but when illuminated by the special revelation of God, aka the Bible, it's a different story. Likewise, the general revelation of nature, though not authoritative over the Bible, has helped us to better understand how God can both be one and three. Be encouraged, science and nature don't contradict scripture as some people claim. What contradicts the Bible is merely some people's opinions and interpretations regarding nature. But it's their interpretation that's faulty, not the Bible's. The Bible presents the correct interpretation of the natural world because the natural world was created by the author of the Bible. Very good, Ryan. Excellent work. Excellent. Janice? Yes, well, and it's May 17th today. Happy birthday, Corey. Thank you. Yes. May 14th was her birthday. Well, it was. you know, some, some <laughs> days birthday, we just... Happy birthday, May 14th. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, the joy of forgiveness, and I titled this today really close because, you know, we're looking at the joy of forgiveness that uh, David is talking about here, how that blessed is someone whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sin is covered. Now, we know, those of us that believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what his death and resurrection did for you and me, he died once and for all, we can live in that joy, knowing that we are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. But it says here in verse three, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. When, when we try to conceal things from God, when we try to hide in our sin, when we try to be when we're defensive and we and we try to just stay the way we are and say, well, God's got to love me, then there is consequences and there is a different feeling and there is a heaviness that comes and a separation that happens between us and God. 
Verse 5, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, God, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And listen to what he says. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There is a joy that comes with that. There is a peace that comes with that. There is a growing and a desire and a hunger to begin to follow after God. There's a beautiful section here. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Oh my goodness, what what would that even sound like? That, that beautiful heavenly music in our ears. But then there's this interesting section now that God begins to speak. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. And then he says, do not be like the horse or like the mule, which has no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. God, the living God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace is inviting you to be that close, really close. Because if you think about it, He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do you realize how close that you have to be in proximity to someone to be guided by their eye? You need to be constantly watching, don't you, Rod? Because if if I'm talking to you and I shift my eyes over here to get your attention, if you're looking over here, you're not going to be seeing my eyes shifting away or anything like that. That's what the Heavenly Father invites us. This beautiful closeness of the Heavenly Father who loves you and has mercy and wants you to be able to live in his care, to be able to be in that deliverance, in this this hiding place that God provides for us. Does it mean we'll never have trouble? No, it doesn't. Jesus told us, you will have trouble. You will have tribulations, but I have overcome the world. Come to me and I will be your help. I will be your shield. In fact, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a beautiful invitation to be close, really close to God. And you know what? He's as close as the mention of his name. He is there. It's you and me who decide how close we want to be. So what's it going to be today? How close are you and I going to be to the living Lord? Lord. 